Well, good evening. Welcome to our Bible study over the life of Christ. We're in the book of Luke chapter 12. We had started this chapter last week. I had stated that when it came to larger portions of Christ's teaching, similar to what you found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 with the Sermon on the Mount, that I would break it up into smaller pieces. And so here we are, doing exactly as I had stated. So we are looking at Luke chapter 12, the entire chapter, all the way from verse 1 to uh, verse 59. I don't think, well, I know we're not going to get to verse 59 today. We'll get through most of the remaining portion of chapter 12, and then we'll finish the rest next Wednesday, and then move on uh, into other parts of the life of Christ as well. So we are going to take a look now at the next passage uh, that we left off at, going to verse 13. In verse 13, I read, And one of the companies said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divided the inheritance with me. And uh, he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. All right, so this is a very interesting passage where we have, I, I want to point out, first of all, we find that this guy comes to Christ, and he says, so I want you to deal with an issue between my brother and myself. Now, Christ automatically says what? Who made me your judge? Now, Christ is the judge. He's the great judge. He's the God of creation. If anyone has the right to judge these two guys, to make a decision on a family matter, it's Christ. I can't tell you how many times I am constantly making judgment calls with my children. Uh, you know, you, you need to stop doing that. You need to change your behavior. You need to treat your sibling better, right? That's my right. That's my authority. Why? Because I'm their dad. Well, Christ has the right and the authority to judge others. Why? Well, not because he's their, their father in a physical sense. Maybe not because he's their father in the spiritual sense. Maybe they're not even saved. So Christ is basically saying, you're coming to me, and you're asking for my help in a matter, but am I your authority figure? Who placed me as your authority in this matter? I love that. Because, you know, I feel like a lot of spiritual leaders, a lot of pastors, they think that automatically they are everyone's judge. Like, they have been automatically placed as the authority figure of, of anyone who comes into their life. Anyone who, uh, who has a problem, that pastor automatically is qualified and has the authority to deal with their issues. I do not believe that is the case. There's other passages of Scripture I could turn to to fight that particular set of beliefs. But here's a great one here. Christ himself says, guys, I'm not going to deal with your issue. In fact, we're going to look in a little bit about the parable he gives of the rich man. We're going to back up here and look at some other things. But I wanted to start with this because I, I don't have a slide for this one. But I just want to start tonight's Bible study with this great thought that God is the great judge. But doesn't necessarily step into every problem of every person. God does not involve himself in all the issues of mankind, you might say, directly. I do believe that God sees all. All will be judged by God. Obviously, everyone will stand before God. Uh, our, our works, good and bad, will be judged by God. I get that. But God isn't going to insert himself into every conversation, every decision that every person makes across the world. I believe that those who have placed God as their authority are going to have more direct interaction with this great judge than those 
who have been running from him. And then last minute say, God, where are you? I want your help. By the way, <laughs> these two guys, it's a financial matter. They are wanting God to decide who deserves the property between the two of them. Isn't that ironic that they would want God to judge the financial status of the two rather than the spiritual condition of either one? All right, now let's back up. We're going to take a look now at uh, verse number 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But if even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, fear not, therefore, a year of more value than many sparrows. <clears throat> when, when life gets tough, it's sometimes very easy to forget how close God is. Especially when we run from God, it's, it's very easy to forget how close God is. You say, well, Pastor Russ, if we're running from God, is God close? Look, you can run from God, but you can't run from God, right? Jonah proved that. If, if you had any doubt, if you have any theological doubt of, can I distance myself from God? Not necessarily. Jonah ran, and there was God in the ocean. There was God at the ship. There was God inside the whale, right? Jonah's literally swallowed by a whale, and God's still there. So when we run from God, we don't run from God in the sense of God's way over there and we're way over here. It's more of when we run from God, a better picture is our back is to God. You see, you can't run out of the room, you might say, of God. If there's a room, God's there, you're there. You can't leave the room and leave God behind in the room and you go to a new room. If you go to a new room, God's still there. It's more of a picture of a, a child who's upset with their parent and the parents in the room, sitting on the bed next to the child, trying to console the child, trying to find out what's wrong with the child, trying to talk through the issue with the child, and the child hold, pulls the blanket over their head, and the child will not speak to the father, will not speak to their, to, to their mother. And so in the child's view, the blanket's over their head. Do they see the parents? No. I mean, they are purposefully blinding themselves from the parent, right? But the parent is still there. You say, well, eventually the parent will leave. I'm sure they would. God doesn't. God doesn't leave. So if you're running from God, all you're doing is pulling the blanket over your eyes. God's still there. God is still near you. God cares. And it's really easy to forget that when the blanket's over our head. When we are in our head running from God, we think he is far away because we don't see him because we're pulling the blanket over our head. We don't, we don't want to talk to God. We don't want God to deal with us. So because we don't see him, we think he's not there, right? It's like a little baby playing peek boo We have maybe seen those videos. You might have done before when you close your eyes. The baby, you know, doesn't see your eyes, so wonders where you are, right? You're like a little child that playing peek boo with God, you think that when, when your eyes are closed or when, when, you can't, when you can't see him, he's not there. No, God is there. God does care whether you are running from him or running to him. God loves you dearly. And God says here that he knows you so well, he knows how many hairs on your head. I'm not going to get into the ultra science of this. I will tell you this. I've got four daughters. I'm married. So five women in my life, a dog, a cat, bunnies, and a son. There's a lot of hair in my life, okay? And it's not all from my head. So I know this, hair comes off your head. So consider if God knows the hairs on our head, he knows every moment how many hairs are on your head. 
which means he's checking regularly. If you want to say checking, he just, he just knows. Does he know because he counts because he's God, or does he just know because he knows? I don't know, but he knows. And he knows every minute how many hairs fell off and when the new hair starts growing. That's how often he is checking on you. That is pretty amazing. There are some people who I believe consider God as someone who just kind of knows you exist but isn't really paying attention. Or, or knew he created you, but then, hey, stepped away and isn't going to talk to you or, or recognize your existence until, I don't know, you're dead or dying or, or until some major event happens, until you cry out to God and think, oh, yeah, Russ, I forgot about that guy. Yeah, Russ, what's up? You know, I don't think that's the case. In fact, I know it's not. God checks in with us, whether you know it or not, whether you ask for it or not. He knows so much about our life, even the things you could say that just don't matter. You ever played the uh, dating game when you were younger? Maybe as a married couple, you played the married game where someone asks random, like, unnecessary questions about each other's life that you really wouldn't know otherwise. You know, what's their favorite roller coaster in the world? Uh, uh, what's their favorite candy bar even? Like, you know, do I ask my wife her favorite candy bar? No, I I guess I could take a stab at it, and I may or may not get it right, depending on what week it is. I mean, my wife, I don't know if my wife has a favorite. It probably depends on the time that she feels that day, right? Uh, depends on what's going on in her life. I know that's for me. My, my favorite candy changes. So, you know, these random questions you're supposed to know about the person you love, right? And then everyone's amazed when you get them all right. Like, wow, you guys know each other so much. You even know the random questions about each other. That is amazing that you would know those things about each other. You must really love each other. You must really know each other well to know the random useless information. God loves you so much, he knows random useless information about you. Now, that can be really scary when you start to consider things past the random useless. When you start to consider those things in your life that even you aren't proud of. When you start to consider the choices you have and are making, you start to consider the thoughts you have and, and do have, had and do have. You start to consider those regrets. There is not one God doesn't already know. And yet, still loves you. And yet, literally says, don't be afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid. By the way, in the same passage talking earlier about how uh, people can harm you. People can hurt you. God says, don't be afraid. I'm near. Don't be afraid. I know you. I know everything about you, and I love you. When my wife and I were first married, my wife didn't know me as well as she does now. We've been married many years now, and my wife had a view of me that was not realistic. She thought, and she told her friends, she said, oh, yeah, Russ, he's, you know, he's great. Uh, you know, can do no wrong. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he, he, he loves God dearly. And, and uh, look, I, I do love God dearly. I, I don't love him as much as my wife thought I did. I'm not an angel. I have issues. My wife has finally figured that out over the years. But originally, she didn't necessarily believe that. I remember telling my wife, we were about one to two years in a marriage, I said, Amy, I am not who you think I am. I am not as good of a guy <laughs> I've got problems. I struggle with sin. I mean, my wife, she had this view of me that was just unrealistic. It actually concerned me. You know why? Because I thought if my wife thinks that I'm this near-perfect man, when I make a decision that hurts her, it's going to hurt 
a lot. It's going to hurt her deeply because I knew inevitably I'm human. I knew I was going to mess up in our marriage. And so as a young age, I was like 23, 24, I was already concerned about how deeply my wife would be hurt if she was putting me on this pedestal of he can do no wrong. So I was telling her I can do wrong even before I did it so that she would be somewhat prepared for reality when it hit her. And so God, you don't have to tell him that. He already knows, and he still loves you. My wife now, you know, we've been married so many years, she knows my wrongs. She knows my issues. I know hers. We know each other about, I think, as good of a person can know someone this side of heaven. And we still love each other. So that's a great reminder and a great thought of the kind of God that we serve. By the way, you see up on the screen Matthew chapter 10, verse 30. The reason is Luke 12, this particular sermon is mentioned in other passages, other Gospels, and I told you that would happen where you're going to find some Gospels mentioning a particular sermon or parable, uh, and this is one of them. So I went ahead and left that up there so you could see the parallel passage that we have on this particular lesson. All right, so let's move on now, and uh, we're going to take a look at verse number 8. Also I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God." But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. And when they bring you unto the synagogues, magistrates, powers, take you no thought of of what you shall answer, what you shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. I've actually taught on this when we talked about blaspheming the Holy Ghost. I I spoke on this. There's only one sin that will essentially send you to hell, that will, that will result in your eternal uh, condemnation in hell, and that is the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I explained what that is. I am very confident blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the rejection of the deity of Christ. You say, well, Pastor Russ, it says here you can speak against the Son of Man but not the Holy Spirit. So how can you pair it with the rejection of Christ when it says you, 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 the Son of Man, a word can be spoken and you will be forgiven, but not the Holy Spirit. Because in the last context that we saw this, what had just happened? I had told you, Christ had done a miracle and people, the religious leaders, said, oh, you're of the devil. You're of Satan. And the miracles that you do are of Satan. You're not God. You're satanic. They were denying the deity of Christ. And by denying his deity, they were also blaspheming the Holy Spirit because it seems That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Trinity, all three, one person, are all involved in everything that it seems Christ was doing, including miracles. The Holy Spirit was involved in the miracles of Christ. And so when they claimed that Christ was not doing miracles of God but of Satan, they were blaspheming the Spirit who was the one doing the miracles with and through Christ, you might say, and also rejecting the deity of Christ, which then, of course, means you're going to hell if you, don't, if you do not acknowledge who Christ is. So that's what's going on here with the blasphemy of the Spirit. But I do also want to point out this verse 8, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. Uh, don't take that to the extreme that a lot of people do. They think that salvation is purely the verbal statement Christ is God, and I am a servant, or in some way I follow God, or I am saved by God. And they think that if you say this verbally, it's some kind of magical prayer, 
some kind of magical statement that if you say it, you're saved automatically. And, and I think some think you got to say it regularly, at least from the Facebook posts that I see of people throwing up there. And they say, oh, you know, I believe in God. And it says in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 8, if you confess him, you're going to heaven, and I'm confessing him. And so if you also like or love or comment or share this post, you also will go to heaven. I mean, now we're just twisting what Scripture is saying. Christ is not saying there is a magical prayer that if it's said out loud before a person, you'll go to heaven. Christ is not saying that if you are dragged into a court of law and if you say, I am a Christian, you're going to heaven. Christ is also not saying if you have a moment of weakness and, and say, oh, I'm not a Christian or I don't go to church, then you're going to hell because that happened to Peter. What he is saying is that those who reject, again, me, the, my deity, those who rejected that I am of the Father, then I will reject them. Now, he says before men, I wouldn't take that Again, as far as others do, I wouldn't say you have to go find a person and tell them what you believe, because belief is clarified later in Scripture where it says that our salvation is by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It doesn't even mention this idea of confession before men. Other passages of Scripture, in fact, we find a, a passage, a story of a, a man who's uh, from Ethiopia, and he wants to get baptized, and the only question asked of him is... Uh, basically, do you accept Christ as your Savior? Do you believe? Do you believe what I've said about Christ? And the man says, I believe. He was not asked, do you, did you confess before a bunch of people? He just was asked, do you believe? The man said, I believe. Then, all right, you're saved. Let's get you baptized. So uh, I hope that clears up some maybe misconceptions that people might have put in your head regarding this passage. It is important that we accept Christ for who he claims to be. And there will be moments where someone may ask a question or an opportunity will come up where you'll be able to confirm that belief. But do not be so concerned that if you have a moment of weakness and you get tongue-tied and you don't feel comfortable and you start getting cold sweats and you're not able to, to give the gospel or confirm your salvation in the way that your heart wants to, don't think you're going to hell because there's only one sin that sends you to hell. It's the sin of rejection of Christ's deity. You say, well, what if I reject it verbally, but I believe it inwardly? Well, I'll tell you this. If I have a son or a daughter who rejected that they were from my family, that would hurt me deeply, very, very deeply. But I wouldn't sever my relationship with them. They're still my child. Would we have a close relationship? No, not if they go around claiming I'm not their dad. No, that's going to hurt. We're not going to have a close relationship at that point. But I'm still their dad. And God calls us his father, our father. And God is a much better father than I am to my children. And so if you take this only passage, there's all kinds of crazy theologies you could come up with just this. But when you take these verses and you compare them to other verses in the Bible, salvation, eternal security makes a lot more sense. And this verse, when defined and explained through other passages, again, just take it at face value of God is basically saying, those who reject me go to heaven. Those who deny me go to hell. And I wouldn't be too worried about the whole public before people thing. Because what does that mean? Does that mean that if I'm saved, every day I have, to, I have to confess it before a person? I have to find someone and tell them I'm saved? Does that mean that I have to, every time a Facebook post comes up, I have to comment, me too, I'm also saved? <laughs> if I don't, am I going to hell? No, not the case. So rejection of the king is the only 
way you'll find yourself in hell. Let's go on to now, after these two brothers, remember they came to Christ and we started today with that, that quick story. Two brothers come to Christ and they say, hey, judge us, which one deserves the property? And Christ says, did, I, did you make me your judge? Did, did I make myself your judge? Well, you could say, well, they are now. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> All they want to do is to decide who deserves the property. They don't really want Christ to judge over all their choices. You know, I've, I've found that a lot of times people come to me over the years, and they wanted counseling, and they want counseling in a particular matter, one thing that bothers them, uh, they're struggling with them and their children or them and their spouse, and, and inevitably, there are other issues going on. If I was to just counsel on that one issue, I wouldn't be any help to them because there's, there's a bunch of things that led up to this problem, <laughs> And so if you do not allow me to deal with all these things that led up to this problem and you only want my advice or opinion in this problem, I'm not interested. All I'm going to do is make enemies out of one of you, if not both, right? Because true counsel is dealing with the deeper issues, not the one thing that they're struggling with right at this moment. And that's what's going on with these two guys. Christ, deal with this issue and then we'll walk away. And Christ is basically saying that there's a whole lot deeper issues than who gets property. And so he deals with the deeper issues for everyone to hear in verse 16. Speaks a parable. The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will put down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself. What was Christ's response to these two guys that wanted to get rich and were mad at each other because these brothers could not come to a, an agreement? Christ said, the issue is not who walks away with property. The real issue is what happens when you die. What happens to your eternal soul? That I want to talk about. I, I don't really care which of you gets property. In fact, in this parable, does he not actually give the warning very strongly of those who care too much about money, where that could take them? The love of money is the root of evil, not money itself. But if you care so much about money, then you are living in wickedness. You are living with an evil heart if money is your first love. Because you cannot share your first love with two people. I always chuckle when I hear usually young girls, middle school or elementary, and they say, oh, my best friend is this person, and my best friend is this person, and I have five best friends. Sometimes I'll, not always, sometimes I'll say, so... You have five best friends? Which one is the best out of the five? And they say, well, they're all my best friends. I said, so then none of them are your best friend. And like, their eyes are wide, like, I'm not sure how to answer that. Yeah, you know, grammatically speaking, you can't have more than one best. There's only one best, right? So these, these young children, these middle schoolers, these, these teenagers, uh, they don't want to accept that. No, they're all my best. No, you can't be that way. <laughs> Maybe there is one that's their best. They just don't want to say who's their best because then the other four get mad at them. That I understand. <laughs> but God says, no, no, you got it. You got to make a decision. You, you can't have me and money both be your best. God says, I'm not sharing that place with money. I'm not sharing that place really with anyone. 
your spouse, your kids. God says, I'm not even going to share it with you. You can't place yourself as the best with me. God says, either I'm the best or I'm not. You can't say, oh, my five best friends, you know, God, my spouse, my kids, you know, how many kids I got, and this friend over here, like, they're all together, all equally important to me. God says, I'm not having that. Not going to happen. When I was in college, I had a lot of friends, girls and guys both. And um, a lot of those friends ended up leaving me when I made choices that uh, did not allow us to maintain friends. But I still had a lot of acquaintances, people that were still like would talk to me occasionally. Uh, and then I started dating. And once I started dating, it was pretty obvious pretty quick that there was not room in my life for my girlfriend and a slew of other college girls at any level of, of, of relationship, aside from, oh, hey, you know, hope everything's going good. You know, my conversation needs to be like 10 seconds or less and move on, right? Not because my wife is, is any more jealous, I think, than just any girl who doesn't want to share her relationship with the man she loves. I think that um, my wife is justified. Looking back, I think my wife was justified in not wanting me to have a bunch of women in my life who were friends as we were dating. And I am convinced God is also justified in not wanting me to have a bunch of people that I've elevated to the level of connection that I should have with him. That needs to be unique. Now, I will say this. Now that we're 38, my wife and I have been married many years my wife, I don't think, really cares anymore. Like, you know, if I talk to, to the women in our church and say hi and, and we do activities where there's men and women there, my, my wife, not that she loves me less, I, we're just in a different place in our relationship. Um, I, I'm not saying that God minds that there are other people in your life. But I'll tell you this. I have no doubt. I don't even have to ask my wife this. She would care a lot if there was ever a woman of any age that had the same, that was on the same level of connection with me as her. That she would care about. Why? Because she's my wife, and that's her right. God doesn't mind that you have other people in your life. God doesn't mind that you have other things in your life. But there is only one best. And God does mind if anyone or anything else is best with or above him. That's a problem. In fact, in the Old Testament, does God not say, I am a jealous God? He says that a lot to the Jews, constantly reminding them, you are hurting me, God says. You are causing me pain. <laughs> you are causing me sorrow. You are causing me anger. Because my connection with you, the nation of Israel, is unique to me, God says. I am placing you in a unique, unique position a relationship I don't have, God says, with any other nation. And yet you're treating me like I'm just one of the gang. You're treating me like, like one of your five best. Whereas God said to the nation of Israel, you are the only best. As far as nations go and the way God treated nations, Israel was that unique relationship with God. Now who is it? Now it's the church. Now it's Christians. Israel has taken themselves out of that position they will be returned to that position in the future. But for right now, God now has that unique relationship with you and me, the church. And so God says, okay, I'm placing you in this unique place. In fact, in the Bible, God refers to us as his bride, his sons and daughters. 
his brothers and sisters. He refers to us as his sheep, his building, his body. He refers to us as his church, his fellowship. He calls us many things. God says, you are unique to me. Does God love the world? Yes, John 3.16. Did God die for the world? Yes, John 3.16. Does God want all the world to be saved? Yes, John 3.16. God wants all these things. God loves the world. But God has placed his church into a unique situation where he says, I want you, church, to be my best. Above everyone else, I have a unique love for you. And God is jealous. God is upset when we want to bring our past boyfriends and girlfriends into the relationship with him. Oh, God, thank you so much for being my brother and, and, my, and you know, God the Father being my father and, and, and being the, you know, I'm, you're the groom and I'm the bride. That is so awesome. Thank you. Can my girlfriend come? Can my ex-boyfriend come along? <laughs> like, I don't know what guys are thinking inviting their ex-girlfriends to their weddings. I, I'm not sure how that's going to look going forward for them in the long run. Like, that's just, in my opinion, common sense. You don't be inviting all your exes to your wedding, right? But it happens. In fact, I've known people... They're, they're like groomsmen and bridesmaids. I'm like, wow, I don't know if that's really good for your relationship or really bad for your relationship where your exes are on stage with you. But, you know, guys, folks, God doesn't want us bringing our exes into the relationship with him. He wants them to stay where they belong. God wants us to have a unique, special relationship with him. And this rich fool was a fool, not because he was rich, he was a fool because he placed money as his best, not God. That's the issue. And so as he's talking to these two young men, he's, he's basically telling them, your priorities are pretty messed up. Here I am, God. You have all the things you could ask me, all the things we could, we could talk about, and you want to talk about money? It's obvious what's most important to you. And so I'm not even going to bother with telling you who should have more money because at this point, it's just destroying you. The rich fool. Let's move on to verse 22. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what you shall eat, neither for your body what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, the body is more than raiment. In verse 24, talking about the ravens and uh, how they're able to eat without having to store food. Verse 25, uh, talking about how you can't, if you, you know, think it and want it bad enough, you can't get taller. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Uh, going and moving on to verse 27, the flowers, they're beautiful. God takes care of them. Even Solomon, King Solomon, what didn't have as much beauty or glory as the flowers. Verse 28, God clothes the grass. He'll take care of you. Verse 29, and seek not what you shall eat or drink. Neither be doubtful of mine. Verse 30, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after. Well, we're not seeking after money. We're seeking after food. We don't, we don't need money. We want clothes. We don't need money. We want a place to live. And God says, I know. I know you need to eat. I know you need to be clothed. I recognize you need a place to live. God says, I know all of these things. Do I not provide these bare necessities for both the animals and nature itself? Nature, no eternal soul. Nature, no feelings. As much as you'd like to believe those trees feel pain, they don't. God says, even nature I take care of. And nature could care less. Nature does not have an opinion about anything, and I take care of that. God says, don't you think that I will take care of you? Well, God, maybe you will take care of us, but will you take care of me the way I want to be taken care of? And there 
is the real issue. You see, we don't want just God to take care of us. We want God to spoil us, and we're mad when he doesn't. God, I have food. I'm not starving, but I'm mad that I don't get to eat, and you fill in the blank. God, I've got clothes, but I'm mad they're not, and you fill in the blank. God, I've got a place to call home, a, a place to sleep at, but, but God, it's not, and you fill in the blank. See, it's not God's job to spoil us. It's God's job, in his own words, to care for our needs. And we need to separate what that looks like. So he says, verse 31, Seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. What things? Food, clothing, housing. God says, these are the things that I will care for you on, the basic necessities. I do not promise to give you everything you want. But if you seek me first, I promise to give you everything you need. I've experienced that in my own life, and it is a beautiful, beautiful promise. I will also tell you this, though. God promises to give us what we need. But look at verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, the kingdom is not money. Kingdom is not food and clothing. The kingdom is salvation. God is bringing it back to what really matters. He says, you won't be the rich fool. You have a lot of stuff. Die, and your eternal soul now goes to hell. He says, but you can be in my arms. I'll care for your needs, and I promise you, your soul will be in my care as well. Your eternal soul is safe. It's my good pleasure. I want to give you salvation. I want you to be in my family. I don't believe there is one soul that has ever existed that God did not want for his own. Give me the worst name of history. God wanted their soul to be his. Verse 34, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's move on now to uh, verse 36. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open upon him immediately. You know, God, I love the pictures. We talked about this, of, of how God sees us. God wants us to not just see him as the giver, someone who provides, right, taking care of our needs. Verse 36, he wants us to see him as, so, as a family who loves. It is a shame to ever get to a point where you would think that your family is there just to give you what you need. My kids are here to fulfill my emotional need. My kids are here for me to fulfill their emotion. Like, we're just here to, to fulfill each other's needs. Emotional, physical, you know, eating, clothing. <laughs> That's all they are, right? That's all we are. That's the only purpose of our family is to 
give each other what we need. I give them what they need, they give me what we need, and we're done. And, you know, over time, our need is to, to get away, the kids are going to grow up and move out, then someone else will fulfill their needs. What a shame if that's how you're living life with the people you love. If you see them as only someone to give needs to and someone to take needs from. What it should be is someone you want to be with. Someone that you want to them to be to want you to be with them both ways. One of my daughters a couple days ago, she said, Dad, you're gonna be working at summer day camp? And I said, Yeah, quite a bit this summer. Some things happen where I need to be more involved. And you know it warmed my heart after I said that? She literally looked sad. My daughter, one of my older daughters, looked sad. I knew why. She didn't have to say it. She was hoping I'd be around more this summer, more than I have been in the past because I'm, summers are not really a, a time off for me. I'm pretty busy. And although that was my plan this summer, plans don't always work out. And so here I am being going to be busy again. Don't, don't worry. I go home. I'm with my kids at night. I see them in the evenings. We have dinner together. We hang out. She was kind of hoping like I'd be home all day, like for multiple days of multiple weeks. That's just not going to happen this summer. And she was literally sad when she learned that. That thrilled me to see that. In fact, it made me a desire to try to be home more, that maybe there are times where I could stay at the office and do more things, I did, but there's a, the office is always going to be here. There will always be things to do. It almost made me a couple days ago thinking, you know, how can I get home earlier on certain days? What can I do with them on the weekends? Because my children legitimately want me to be there. You know what? I want them to be near me too. That's how family ought to be, right? I'm not saying anything most of you, if not all of you, don't agree with and don't understand. You get that. Do you get that with God? Or is God just someone who fulfills your needs? And you do the same for him. Oh, God needs me to be at church? No, he doesn't. Oh, God needs my money? No, he doesn't. Oh, God needs me to evangelize and to witness? Uh, No, he doesn't. (laughs) You know, it's funny. When we think we're fulfilling God's needs, you're just lying to yourself because there's no needs God has. <laughs> and if he did, it certainly wouldn't be fulfilled by you. I can tell you that right now. So in your head, your relationship with God is he give me, gives me what I need, I'll give him what he needs. No, first of all, it's a one-way relationship in that case because you're not giving him anything he needs. And I, I question, is he even giving you what you need if that's how you see him? No, forget the needs. And think of God as a family member, as a father, brother, who loves you deeply and wants to be with you and wants you to be with him. I can almost picture God, like my daughter, that look on her face. So, Dad, you going to be home more now that it's summer? No, honey, sorry. I got to work a lot to do. I'll be home you know, after work every day like I normally am. You know, God's not some young girl. God's not a middle school girl. But God surely loves us. And God feels emotions. God feels sorrow. The Bible tells us that. In fact, we're warned not to cause the Holy Spirit sorrow (laughs) by rejecting him. And how often do we do just that to the one who loves us the most? Yes, seek God's kingdom. Place God first over everyone and everything else. And if you do, 
God's promise of provision to you is clearly in Luke. But don't seek him to get. Seek him because you want to be with him. And you will get. Is my, uh, is that it? I thought I had one more slide, Christian. Thank you. I thought so. I think the battery might be dead. Okay. I thought we had one more. Let's move on. Last slide of tonight. Last section. And so I'd like to take a look now. Let's jump on to verse 41. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? (laughs) Okay. Peter wants to be sure. God, you calling me out or is that just a general statement, right? You ever been... uh, in a worship service before that where the pastor preaches, the preacher preaches, and you talk to them after and say, now, were you preaching at me? Is there something I, that you know about me? You need to tell me. We need to have a conversation because I'm pretty sure you're preaching at me, right? I think Peter is saying that. Why would you ask that, by the way? The only reason you'd ask that is if, if, if the message hit home, right? If the message convicted you. So what does that tell you about Peter right now? When God, for the last uh, multiple minutes here, has been preaching on put me first, over money, over relationships, and Peter says, you talking to me? What, what does that tell you about Peter? Peter's struggling with this. Well, I mean, Peter left the boats. Peter left the fish to follow Christ, yes, but then doesn't he not return back to them when, when Christ raises from the dead? Yeah, well, but Christ was dead. No, at that point when Peter returned, Christ had risen from the dead, and yet Peter still returns back. I think, I think Peter left the fish, but it's not until... He has that conversation with Christ at the end of the Gospels. Does Peter really leave the fish? Really? Like, you know what? I'm done with them. I don't need to ever go back to my past life. There was a part of him had a longing to it. But it wasn't just the fish because he evidenced in Peter's life. Who, who did he really battle with putting first? It wasn't the fish necessarily, even though I think that's part of it because Christ does say, do you love these fish more than me? So I think the fish were kind of really far up there with Christ. Who else? Himself. Peter struggled with putting himself up there with Christ, from what I can tell. And so when Christ is talking about this whole put me first thing and seek my kingdom first thing, Peter's saying, God, are you talking to me directly or are you talking to everyone here? So (laughs) what does Christ say? Christ doesn't actually answer him. He doesn't actually say, Peter, I was only talking to you or not. He gives another parable. That must have caused Peter some anxiety, like, okay, so you never answered Christ. Is it me? Well, let's see what Christ's parable is. Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But and if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming and shall begin to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink, to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. Okay. This can be a scary parable, because it implies that if you don't continue serving God, then you're going to hell. Because it says this servant was told, do this, be faithful, stay committed, and the servant doesn't, right? The master leaves. The servant starts beating the other fellow servants. I mean, look, they're all servants. He's just like the head servant over under servants. You could say like he's the boss. He's the supervisor, but they're all servants. 
Uh, and so this servant, given a position, you might say, of authority over other servants, takes advantage of that position and starts beating them. Well, considering that uh, Christ is saying when he comes back, this person is literally has a portion with the unbelievers, it's interesting the sins that he mentions. There's, there's really, what I see, two main sins. Obviously, rejection, unfaithfulness, I get that too, but two main ones. He mentions beating other people and drunkenness. Just goes to show you how severe both these sins are in God's eyes, that he would, he would use these to illustrate the unregenerate uh, heart of this person. That does not mean if you're drunk, you're unsaved. It does not mean if you get in a fist fight and hurt people, you're unsaved. But that is, those are sins that God is equating to the unsaved. How dare we as Christians ever find ourselves in a position where our lives illustrate the unregenerate heart of the unbeliever rather than Christ. If, you, if your life looks like an unbeliever, it doesn't mean you are, doesn't mean you'll go to hell, but it sure looks like it. Now, I want to point out, he does say in verse 46, and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. That means where he belongs. That's what that phrase is talking about. I'm going to put him where he belongs with the unbelievers, which tells you what? This person is an unbeliever. Well, if he was an unbeliever, why was he placed as a leader in the church? That's not what this is saying. This passage is not talking about pastors or leaders in the church. It is, it is a parable using a, a cultural phenomenon at that time where heads of households did leave, and when they left, they put their servants in charge. Not all those servants were good servants. Not all, not all those servants were committed, faithful servants to the head of the household. So he's using an illustration that this culture understood. Let's not take that illustration further than it needs to go. He is not saying that if you are put in a position of leadership in the church and you hurt people, harm people, abuse people, when Christ comes back, you're going to hell. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, consider this parable of a head of household who goes on a trip and gives people the opportunity to do right while he's gone gives people the opportunity to represent him while he's gone. This head of household leaves and says, I am coming back. Consider wisely what you will do while I'm gone. So this parable is not illustrative of Christ and the church. It is illustrative of Christ and the world. He left the world. He's coming back. And, and he leaves the world, and, he, and he's, he's basically saying, consider what you're going to do while I'm gone, because I am coming back. Some of you will mess around while I'm gone. Some of you will abuse your fellow man. Some of you will have your portion with unbelievers. Why? Because you are an unbeliever. That's where you belong. Your, your actions will evidence that unregenerate heart. Your actions will evidence the unbelief of your heart. It, when he comes back, he's going to put them in the portion with the unbelievers. There will, it says here, cut them asunder. It, it, there is a couple of ways that phrase could be used. One, literally, like, you know, you're dead, like head cut off. It could also just mean uh, a punishment that includes not just whippings, but I don't want to get graphic here, but that would include some very extreme, painful experiences. doesn't mean you'll die through it, because I don't know how to cut them asunder and then beat them. It would be a dead body, right? So I, I'm going to say the cutting asunder is basically an extreme physical punishment upon this servant. And then on top of that, then they're going to be whipped, 
and then thrown out with the unbelievers. So, there are those who have positions of authority in the world. Again, this is not illustrative of the church. This is just illustrative of God has left. What are you going to do with the time that you have? There are people who are in positions of authority who have the opportunity to help or hurt, whether it's the church, politics, whatever, help or hurt. They're not going to go to heaven because they help, and they're not going to go to hell because they hurt. But God is watching what they do, whether it's in the church or out. And God is saying, choose wisely the choices you make while I'm gone because I'm coming back. But remember, in this same chapter, ultimately, what's the only sin God will not forgive? What's the only sin that will send you to hell? It is unbelief. It is rejection of Christ's deity. But like I said earlier tonight, what a shame if someone was a believer, trusted Christ, but this passage described them. They were abusers of other, others, whether physical or emotional, sexual, whatever. They abused other people during their time on this earth. How horrible to actually be saved but live the life of an unbeliever. He then, I think, very um, interesting, he goes on to mention here. Let's look at verse 48. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. There are those who don't know Christ. They will still be punished for their unbelief. You say, Pastor Russ, how can that be fair? They, they didn't ever go to church. They never owned a Bible. No one ever told them the gospel. How is it fair that they would also suffer punishment. Well, the Bible describes that for us. The Old Testament says that they have creation to see. And creation points to God. And if they reject that truth, that creation points to God, then they have rejected God on a very basic level. Well, what if they accept that, okay, there must be a God out there? Okay, then my question is, did they create their own God in their head? Because most do. You look at most cultures, most, most people who look at creation and see that there's a God and you, if you were to walk into their life, their home, their town, whatever, and, and see what that looks like for them. Oh, they believe there's a God. They just created this God. Well, it can't be God if you've created this God, right? So they kind of started in the right direction, but then they veered off severely. <laughs> well, then they're not saved. What about those who truly believe there is a God and don't create him in their own mind? Then I believe that God says, draw an eye to me and I will draw an eye to you. I believe that God's word says, it's not my will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I believe that Christ said, I, I came to seek and to save the lost. I came to, to help those who know they're sick. I believe that God, who knows the hairs on our head, can find those who are truly seeking him. They're not going to be lost to him. Those truly seeking God will be found by God. That's what I believe very strongly. How that looks, I'm sure, would, look, would be different depending on the person, the area, what's going on in their life at the time. But consider this. If God loves the human so much, every human so much, he sent his son to earth to die, 
and there is someone in this world who says, there is a God. I want to know him. God's like, "Ah, you know, I don't have time for you. Oh, but it would be so hard to bring this person from here to here to tell them, tell you about me. I just, I just don't have the time to bring that person to you. I'm just, I'm tired. I don't have the energy for it. No, you know, God's going to make it happen. If they are seeking God, God promised, draw nigh to me, I will. That's a promise. I will draw nigh to you. God will find those who have responded to the initial truth that there has to be a God out there because there's a creation. So those who reject that basic truth, there is no God, are still responsible for that rejection. And although they don't know a lot about God, a lot about Christ, they know enough to be unsaved, God does say, but they will receive fewer stripes, which means what? They're still going to have their portion with the unbelievers. That's the implication from the previous verse we saw. He's not giving stripes to the believers. He's giving them to the unbelievers. They'll still be thrown out. But God said the amount of judgment upon them will match the amount of knowledge that they had. You know, when I was young, I just considered the lake of fire was a lake of fire, horrible for everyone. Now that I've done a lot more research, study of Scripture, I'm not so convinced of that. I'm not saying there's seven levels of hell. I'm not a, I'm not a follower of Dante. I don't, I've said that, you know, recently. I don't believe that necessarily. But I do believe Scripture when it says that it's going to be worse for some and not at others. And look, hell is hell. I don't want to go there. I wouldn't want anyone to go there. Even the best scenario in hell is still hell. But it's going to be really bad for some and just kind of bad for others. So, what does that mean for us? Are you bothered that those who don't know will still be punished? You should be. So, what are you doing about it? I'm not saying you have to go across the world to tell others. Because there are people in this community who don't know. And do you make the effort to take part in our outreach program here at Meriden Hills? Do you make the effort to take part in your own? You don't have to only reach out when we're doing it. Do you reach out to your family, to your friends? Do you have conversations about what really matters to the eternal soul? Because tonight we've seen now multiple times where Christ keeps bringing it to that. People want to have conversations about other things. Christ keeps bringing it to the eternal soul. That's what matters. And finally, I want to remind you tonight, we are God's servants. God is left just for a time. We will not go to heaven because we're good servants. We will not go to hell because we're bad servants. But those who reject God, there will be actions they will have that reflect that unregenerate heart. God expects that those who Accept him, he expects that our actions would reflect that. Why? Because we love him. Why do we love him? Because he loves us. We are his servants. God doesn't need us. We have the opportunity to serve an amazing God. Do you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your people. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the truth that we found in it tonight and the encouragement to stay faithful. The reminder that ultimately the only sin 
that would cause us to be in hell is the sin of unbelief, rejection of Christ. But there are so many things as believers we can do that would bring shame and sorrow to you, hurt to others. And I pray that we would not just be servants, but good servants. Servants who are committed and faithful to you until you return or until you bring us to your kingdom in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.